Okay. Start with prayer. Lord be with you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together. Open our hearts, our minds, and our souls so that we may be attentive to what you have, would have us learn during this time so that all of our acts and all of our thoughts may be for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I'm here to talk about Taoism, which is like a really difficult thing to try to discuss or explain, especially for Westerners. English is like the, is the biggest impediment to fully, fully understanding Chinese philosophy as a whole because the way Chinese works, the, the, I don't know a whole lot about the language, but the language is so radically different and all this stuff is written in ancient Chinese and so appropriating it for a Western mind is uh, a struggle. Mike asked me to do this just because I, this is a, a subject that I've spent a lot of time on my own studying. I love Chinese philosophy. Uh, it's a, just a minor passion of mine and has been for a long, long time. I've, over my life, probably written like, not, not for publishing, just for my own, like, just as I'm trying to struggle through this stuff, written probably three or four hundred pages just of dribble as I try to think through all the different stuff in Chinese philosophy. And really to talk about Taoism as a particular instantiation of Chinese philosophy, you kind of have to talk about the whole mo the movement as a whole in the same way that you, you can't talk about Western philosophy. You really can't understand Western philosophy unless you understand Socrates and Plato. Somebody once said that all of Western philosophy is just footnotes on Plato. So if you want to understand philosophy, you have to start with Plato. If you want to understand Chinese philosophy, any of it, you have to start with Confucius. So to talk about Taoism, you have to talk a little about Confucianism. All this stuff, Chinese philosophy takes place at the same time that Plato and Socrates are doing their work in Greece. All across the world, between the, the years of about 800 B.C. to 200 B.C., in different parts of the world, seemingly independent of each other. Some of them were connected, some of them weren't. You have people reinterpreting the ancient religions of mankind. So the Greek philosophers come up and they take ancient Greek mythology and they rationalize it. They take, they take it to a new level and they develop what we would know as like logic, aesthetic, metaphysics, everything we know as philosophy today. But what they're really doing is they're critiquing and refining the ancient religions that they grew up, grew up with. The same thing happens in Persia with Zoroastrianism. It happens with, um, in, in the Bible with the Hebrew prophets revolutionizing the religion that came before them. It happens in, in uh, India in, with Buddhism and Hinduism reinterpreting the Vedic religion. And it also happens in China. The difference in China is the Chinese religion was, was nature worship, ancestor worship, and um, animism and things like that. It was very low to the ground. It wasn't systematized the way it was in Greece, in Persia. It wasn't like the, the grand pagan religions of old. It was something much raw and something much less um, um, formal. And so when Confucius comes around and he takes what's going on in his society and he reinterprets it and develops what we would call Chinese philosophy, he's having to start a lot more from scratch in some ways. Like how do you stay true to something that doesn't, how do you reinterpret a religion that isn't really a religion, is more like folk magic and stuff like that. 
So Confucius says is Confucius says that all of philosophy, all of religion is the search for what they call the word is TAO and you probably know it best by the symbol of the yin yang. Um, but it's, it's pronounced the Tao is how it would be pro properly pronounced. So you pronounce it as, as if it's D-A-O or D-O-W, but you'll see it's spelled T-A-O. Um, there's long, drawn-out discussions about the word and what it means and how to pronounce it properly, and all that stuff is extraordinarily boring, so we're not going to talk about it. But Confucius says that there is a way the world is. The universe is moved by a principle, something that moves nature. Nature is moved by a principle. And mankind has trouble, mankind gets into trouble when it separates itself from the way the universe works. You can think about this a lot of different ways. You can think of it as a force, a la Star Wars. Star Wars was actually borrowing from a lot of this stuff. Um, you can think of it as just a law of nature in the same way that physics discovers laws of nature. So more of a, a law of the way nature behaves almost on a moral or metaphysical level. Or you can think of it as um, just an observation about how things happen to behave. But Confucius says there's a way the world works and mankind's problems, we would, you know, evil, wars, um, greed, all this stuff comes from separating yourself from the way nature works. The funny thing is, is that Confucius goes on to describe the way nature works in a way that doesn't really look much like nature works. He, he talks about a set of relationships. He says, if we want to organize our society properly, if we want to organize ourselves around the way the universe works, we're going to emphasize certain individual relationships. So he looks at, at, human, at humankind as kind of a, we're like a web or like a set of concentric circles. So you start out with yourself and your family and you learn how to behave from your immediate family. From that you learn how to behave in relation to a larger community and ultimately towards the nation as a whole. And he says what we got to do is we got to fo focus on the family. We got to get people acting right on, in their familial units. And then we got to make sure we got to start working from the other side too. We got to start making sure emperors and officials are treating each other right. And from like two directions, we're just going to fix all of society. So he goes around and he starts preaching this kind of um, relational revolution. Let's focus on our individual relationships. And he sets up all these rules, tons of rules of conduct that define right relationship between a parent and a child, between siblings, between friends, between governments and their, um, their people, between kings and officials. So he has these sets of relationships and he comes up with just endless rules through five books of the way people should behave. And he says, if you do this, then you are acting in accordance with the way of heaven or with the Tao. And that's, that's what we need to do, and let's start this thing. And he tries to start a cultural revolution. Now, I want to pause for a second, and I want to draw a really interesting parallel between what Confucius was doing and what, what Plato and Socrates did. Because Plato and Socrates said about the same time over in Greece, they're saying the whole universe has to operate according to some principle. And what we need to do is we need to find out what that principle is. And they called that principle the logos. So it's just really fascinating how you have these two kind of independent 
thinkers in two different places come up with the exact same project and the rest of the history uh, intellectual history of those two cultures would be defined by those two projects and it was really basically the same idea that there was some principle that rules the universe and that we need to get ourselves in line with that principle also interesting is how discursive and formula formulaic both um, um, Plato and Socrates and Aristotle and Confucius were to that. It was all, there's a very set pattern, let's set up these rules. Pl Socrates was like, there's a set way to think, deductive reasoning, we're going to set up those rules. We think right, then the world will act right. Confucius is like, there's a set way we should behave with one another, let's, let's relate correctly, the world will be fixed. So Confucius goes around and he starts preaching to people, and eventually he starts preaching, especially to, um, to people, because at this time there's not one emperor. There's, China's broke up into different kind of sub-kingdoms, and he's going to different kingdoms, and he's trying to get people to take on his project, and nobody will take on the project. No, they, they entertain him. Confucius must have, been, must have been a really powerful speaker. They put him up. They make him important. They, he's, he's almost have him in your kingdom as kind of a... A, uh, a status symbol over the other kingdoms. Hey, he's, he's come to us now. But a lot of it was just placating him, and nobody actually instituted the reforms he wanted to institute. So then he goes off, and he starts schools, teaches other philosophers, and that's really the beginning of Chinese philosophy as we know it. And those philosophers go out and teach other people, and eventually Confucianism becomes really, really influential in Chinese culture. It remains that way today. Um, obedience to your parents, um, an acceptance of the of your government. Like you don't, it, there's not a real strong spirit of like of revolution usually against whoever happens to be in charge at the time. That kind of stuff is really because of what Confucius did. But other thinkers start approaching, say, well, Confucius is right that there's one principle ruling the universe. He's right about the Tao, but he's wrong about what that looks like. In fact, his stuff looks really artificial, and that's, that has, makes, it's just, he, a lot of people, just, they just, they don't agree with how he understands the way the universe to be. One guy, interesting guy, is a guy named Mo Tzu, uh, Mozi, and he comes up and he talks about universal love and compassion being the way of the world, and that if, uh, you know, um, if we give ourselves to love as the ultimate truth of the universe, that that's the, the solution to things. And Mozi did not survive very long, and his school didn't survive any, every, very long. Nobody, that he was persecuted and killed and mostly lost to history. But some people have thought that if Mozi had been successful in China, we'd all be Moists instead of Christians because his ideas were so similar in some ways to Jesus Christ. And so this goes on for a while until a, either a council of philosophers or an individual philosopher, philosopher named Lao Tse does away with the whole system. He says the whole idea that there's these set of laws that we have to submit ourselves to, to rules of etiquette relating to other people is nonsense. And he writes a, a set of poetry called the Tao Te Ching. Just... A set of poems, it's the whole thing is not more than 30 pages long, it's, and the, the poems are really short. And what he suggests is that any attempt to structure one's life according to some set of rules 
is antithetical to the way the universe actually works. The universe is a place of spontaneity and change and novelty and being open to that, being open to a kind of constant transformation is what's necessary in order to align yourself with the Tao. And it is Lao Tse's philosophy that comes to be known as Taoism, mostly because almost every single part of that poem, the Tao Te Ching, speaks to the Tao. The Tao is this, the Tao is that, the Tao is not this, the Tao is not that. And just because of the, the absolute focus and kind of the repetitive nature of that concept in the text, this is becomes, become, becomes known as Taoism. Now, what the Tao is for Lao Tse is really hard to express to other people because in that, the Tao Te Ching, the main focus is on something called on emptiness. And we think about emptiness and we think about nothingness. We think about the absence of stuff. The, like if I came up to you and I said that ultimate reality, the ultimate truth of the universe is emptiness, that sounds like a very negative kind of idea. But what he's, ta what he's talking about is an emptiness that is yet fullness. It's an emptiness that is the source of creation. And in the Tao Te Ching, they use a few different um, analogies. As I talk about this, I'm going to use a lot of analogies, both in the Tao Te Ching and my own, to try to get you to understand what, what Lao Tse is talking about. Because the whole idea of the Tao is that ultimately it's mysterious. It's not something that can be put into some kind of logical form because it's reacting against Confucius' tendency to, or attempt to do that very thing. I can't give you a set of rules or a simple description that describes what Lao Tse is talking about because that would be violating the entire project. So instead, I'm going to talk by analogy and hope that you can start to get a sense of where he's going. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about the ethical implications of, da of Taoism, its cultural effects. Um, Taoism goes on to be a religion, a philosophy, a way of life, a cultural aspect of Chinese life day in and day out, and, and more and more, and on and on. It's not this formula kind of so like religion like Christianity is or like Judaism is, it is that for some people, but that's not all it is. Creating a line between like the philosophy of Taoism, the religion of Taoism, Taoism just as a, cult a feature of Chinese culture is impossible. It all kind of flows together. So he talks about a spoke on a wheel. That's the like the first and the main um, imagery that Lao Tse talks about when he talks about the Tao. He says, imagine a spoke on the wheel that's empty. He goes, even though it's empty, all of the spokes come out from that emptiness. And it is that emptiness, that, that nothingness, which allows the wheel to work. We don't really use wheels with spokes anymore, so it doesn't do as much good. A, a better analogy might be a window. A window is there to let light in. It is the emptiness of a window's form. It is its translucence that allows it to do what it's supposed to do. So Lao Tzu's point is, is that ultimate reality does what it does by not doing. 
in, in Taoism is called Wu Wei, and there's like a thousand different ways to translate those words. The action that is non-action. The doing that is doing nothing. Probably my favorite translation is effective non-interference. Another analogy I like to use is in dance, you have a frame. And framing is really important in dancing. It's the main, it's, you take years and years to get your frame right. And the reason you have, uh, you ha framing is so important is you have to be able to make space between the two people. And dancing can be thought of as moving the space that exists between the two people. It is the, the space between that is the more important focus when you're dancing. When you do three-eighths turns, you have to know how to get out of a person's way. It is that act of getting out of the way that allows, like that's the hardest thing to learn and to work on and to get right is how to get out of the other person's way. But it is that act of getting out of the way that makes dance flow makes it look synchronized and everything else. It is the movement of the space between two people that really is the important focus when you're dancing. And it's hard when you're dancing to get that into your head because you think when you think about moving, of moving yourself, of getting where you need to go and everything else, of acting, not of getting out of someone's way, not of opening up space. That's how Lao Tse is thinking of ultimate reality that the universe acts like that, not by moving positive space, but negative space. Another example of this is Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee lives this philosophy out in his, in, uh, um, in his uh, Chinese boxing, which is actually the kind of martial art he develops. So Bruce Lee comes into a time when all martial arts is stylized. So you have styles and forms, and you learn styles and forms, and that's how you learn to do martial arts. And he gets in real trouble with, some, uh, with people back home because he lets some of the styles and forms that you're not supposed to show Westerners, he starts teaching it to Westerners and that gets him in trouble. But what gets him more in trouble is he, develop, he tells people this is, this is not the right way to do martial arts. You should learn styles and forms, but it's ultimately to not use them at all. He says the point of learning styles and forms is to move past them. You need to be like water. You have to be able to be completely reactive. This is his philosophy. He says, he, he, there's one place where he says, water just moves over the rock, but eventually it wears the rock down. It's water's ability to move over that allows it to wear, wear the rock down. So he's talking about a complete and total openness to a particular situation when you're in physical combat, which allows you to be, to, overcome somebody who has stylized form. His last movie that he never got to finish was, was the, called The Tower of Death. And in each one, he fights someone who adheres to a particular form of fighting. So karate, kung fu, uh, different, who, they have different forms and styles. And he shows how his stylist fight, fighting style beats each and every one of them. That's kind of the way Taoism is approaching life as a whole. That by, being, by not overthinking what you're doing, by not struggling to make something happen, by just being open to what the universe has to offer, by not forcing yourself on other people, not forcing yourself on life, that's how you learn to live properly. 
That's how you learn to live in line with the universe. By learning where to make space and how to make space for other people. And this is his philosophy on politics. So he would agree that the government, the government uh, governs best that governs least, for instance. He wanted emperors to stop over-controlling everybody's lives. To give people room to be themselves. He thought, he thought too many laws was a bad idea. Because it is by withdrawing control that the leaders let people find their own way. For in, in relation to a child and a parent, Confucius would have had a, had a whole set of etiquette rules. And this is how you raise a child and down to aching detail. And Lao Tse is like, you need to let your child find their own way. You've got to learn how to give people freedom. How to give people options and tools and then let them figure things out for themselves. Because it is in giving freedom to other people that you learn what love really is. And this, he has what they call the three jewels of Taoism, which is moderation, compassion, and humility. Moderation, compassion, and humility are, are the main moral ways in which you live out this kind of giving up control. Compassion is thinking for, uh, of other people rather than yourself, not asserting your own needs and wants, but being receptive to what other people need and want. Moderation is not, try, not over um, emphasizing your own desires, not focused on what you want, but instead only on what you need. And humility is the same way. It's giving up yourself so that you can make room for other people. Um, so Taoism goes on and it, start, it, it becomes a part of, of, chi of the way Chinese think about nature and how you're supposed to interact with the world. And eventually it gets formalized and com combined with Confucianism by Neo-Confucianism once the emperor takes over. And it just becomes a part of the whole tapestry of Chinese life. Confucianism, Taoism, as different as they are, they're all part of the same like swath of life in China. There's, there are Taoist temples, but they wouldn't be distinguished from, they, they don't distinguish themselves from Confucianism and stuff like that. That's a good question. Neo-Confucianism beca is, is, becomes this really complicated metaphysical system. It's developed like 13th century, wherein basically they use Taoism to justify, yes, you open yourself to life, and when you do that, you get a lot of what Confucius is already saying and stuff like that. The jumps in logic that they use to develop all that is kind of ridiculous, and ultimately Confucianism becomes the more dominant kind of spirit in China. Confucianism becomes more in line with the way people actually live day to day. But when they think about what nature is, like, um, just like, like Bruce Lee, like his, his martial arts, it's stuff like that. You see examples of people thinking in those ways, which has its root in the way the Tao Te Ching is written. Another illustration, so you see what I'm saying? So, so it, Confucianism becomes kind of the more dominant spirit in China and remains that way today. Um, it, it, some of the governmental activities that China undertakes, it would be hard to, 
see people doing, the government doing in the United States without people really rising up and really making a mess all the time. Tiananmen Square stands out because it was unusual in China. But the truth is, is that accepting that being obedient to your government is part of the spirit of China because of Confucianism. So you don't have this kind of, that kind of strong libertarian, kind of liberty kind of spirit in China because of the culture, because of the way Confucianism influences the culture. For right or wrong, I mean, there's people who've written extensively that the Chinese way of approaching things, the Chinese cultural approach that Confucianism is superior, I'm not morally judging it one way or the other. It's just, it'd be hard to see some of the things that they do happening in the United States without a big struggle. Whereas in China, it's just not, they don't, people don't think the same way about it. And you see it in, day, if, you, if you've, um, uh, in the way merit, you know, um, children treat their parents, um, honor and obedience is emphasized more. I want to tell one more story. After the Tao Te Ching is written, there's another book written uh, maybe 100 years later called the Zhuangzi. And the Zhuangzi is a series of stories which are meant to illustrate Taoist principles. And there's a story in there that's my favorite story. I, I love this book. I love this this short story. It's about the emperor visiting a meat cutter. And the meat cutter is like chopping meat off of the bone. And he's like flipping his, his, his butcher knife up and he's just cutting through it and meat's flying off perfectly. And the emperor is blown away. This meat cutter is an artist. And he says, he goes up to the guy, he goes, you figured out the secrets of the universe, haven't you? And he goes, yep, because I let the Tao move my knife. He goes, there's sinews and there's openings along the side, and my knife moves across those openings. I don't push. I don't hit. I let the knife do its work. He says, he says this knife hasn't been sharpened in 19 years. I don't have to sharpen it because I let the knife do the work. And he talks about how easily he can take like, all this meat off of this or that bone and how it's not because of him, it's because there's something bigger than him just moving him and he's letting go. He knows when to push just a little bit. He knows when not to. He knows the nook and crannies through which the knife has to slip. And the emperor says, now I understand everything because I've watched you cut this meat. Uh, have you ever seen this? You remember the old Superman movie with uh, Gene Hackman, Superman one? There's a part where Gene Hackman says, "There's people who can read War and Peace, and they just come. It just comes away as an interesting story. And there's people who can read the back of a gum wrapper and unlock the secrets of the universe. And that's that's what that that moment's like. And it illustrates so much of the way Taoists think that the important part of cutting meat is not the cutting." but knowing where those spaces are. It's not pushing harder. It's letting go. It's letting gravity do its work. Stuff like that. That's, that's the kind of action that Taoists think should overtake your entire life. It's being open to every single situation. He talks about how every cut of meat is a little different. So knowing where those, those spaces are 
and being open to them being other places is important. He goes down to the details of how Taoism, the Tao, moves his knife when he cuts up an animal. And in that is the secret to everything. Because the same, for a Taoist, the same principle that governs that governs the universe, which is just letting go. Letting, letting there be space for other things to do what they're supposed to do. Now, for me as a Christian, I've always found Taoism to be fascinating because I think it ha- it's a good philosophical foundation for thinking about the way God relates to the world. The Taoists are not talking about God. The Tao is not God. It's not a person. It doesn't answer prayers. The Taoists do, be- traditional Taoism believes that the, this force, this way of nature is revealed in three gods. And they worship these three gods as revelations of a higher power, which is the Tao, just the way the world is. So Taoists are not talking about God. So what I'm about to say, what I'm about to say, I'm saying it from a Christian point of view. I'm taking off, like, my religious history and religious philosophy kind of analysis and putting on a Christian hat and thinking about what this means for me as a Christian. All of Christian theology is done from a philosophical point of view. When you read St. Irenaeus, St. Ignatius, Origen, Augustine, they're using Greek philosophy to understand what the Bible is saying. And that's because the Bible is a raw encounter with God. But we have to think in systems. We have to start planning out how we're going to live our daily lives. What does this mean for us as people who also live in the world? So philosophy is used to approach the Bible. You can't, it's not really possible to approach Scripture in a non-philosophical way because philosophy is the way you think. And the way you think is going to affect the way you live. And religion is partly how you live your life. Taoism and its philosophical form, I believe, in some ways is superior to Greek philosophy when trying to approach what's happening, especially in the New Testament. Because in Christianity, we have this idea called kenosis, which is the idea that God empties God's self as an act of redemption. The main text for this is Philippians 2, where it says, God, Jesus, though being of the very form of God, did not take equality with God as something to be exploited, but instead took the form of a, of a slave and then gave himself up to death, even death on the cross. That God saves us through God's humility. So I correspond with the Taoists are talking about to the humility of God. The idea that God lets other things the freedom lets other things have the freedom to be who they are that god through suffering and through self-sacrifice both creates sustains and redeems the universe um jewish people had there's a an old jewish uh, kind of rabbinical story that imagines god literally shrinking god's self down as the universe is created to give the universe room to exist there's a Christian idea that's come up in the last century that as in the Trinity, as, a, as you know, imagine as like a triangular action or a Trinitarian action, that between the Trinity there is space, and that space is where creation takes place. So Christians start talking in some ways that are, are, are commensurate with the way that Lao Tse talks about the way the universe works. 
that the ultimate act of ultimate reality, the most effective act of ultimate reality, is to know when not to act. That the ultimate loving act, and you can think about this as a parent, right? Sometimes the hardest thing a parent has to do is let their child make decisions for themselves, even if they think they're not the right decisions. That's, it hurts, especially if you know the child's going to make, make a decision that you, you suspect isn't going to be the best for them or for anybody else. But that act of choosing to hurt, that act of letting them make their own decision is an act of love. In some ways, it's the ultimate act of love, giving people the freedom to choose for themselves. And ultimately, you know that if you want a child that is fully developed, that is fully themselves, that is happy and healthy, giving them that space, letting go that control, is the best way to make that happen. That that's the most effective way even if it means momentary pain or, or a time of pain and suffering for them, it is the best way for them to ultimately get where they need to be as people. If we think of God interacting with the universe the same way, that is a way to think about what Lao Tse is talking about in the Tao Te Ching. Where an ultimate reality is emptying itself, and through this self-emptying, creating everything. Any questions? I do better. I, I, I'm, I'm a kind of a question-answer guy. I know Mike's not, not but I'm, I'm kind of a question-answer guy. Anybody have any questions about anything so far? Yeah, um, the, has the, the Tao of religions evolves all the time. It's super diverse. It's, it, it exists in some ways different for every person in every part of China and every culture in China because China's huge and has a lot of cultures, a lot of languages. So you can go to actual formal Taoist temples in China. There are formal Taoist temples. But most Chinese probably wouldn't um, identify themselves as Taoists. That's not something they would ch check off on a box or something. But in their day-to-day -day life, if you watched, you would see them undertake actions that are influenced by what Lao Tse was writing about his influence on culture. Uh, like I said, martial arts. A lot of martial arts, Tai Chi, stuff like that, develops because of, um, because of wh what Lao Tse was saying. So I'm saying that there's philosophy, there's the religion, and then there's the cultural influence. Those three things exist in different ways in different places for different people, but you can't create a strict line between the three. You can't, like, carve out the one or the other. This is true in Japan, too. I read an awesome article about Japanese religion and culture. Um, and Japanese religion and culture was influenced highly by Chinese religion and culture, so this, there's, there's actually a... a this is, this is, there's a movie that's, that I recommend that helps illustrate some of the stuff. It's called Ramen Girl. And it's with Brittany Murphy. And she's an American, and she, gets she, she goes with her boyfriend to Japan, and they're living together, and he leaves her in Japan. She doesn't know what to do. She goes into a deep depression. She finds this little ramen shop. We think about ramen like soup, but in Japan, it's a big, big deal. To be a ramen chef is a big deal. It's like high cuisine. And they have a whole cult, literally a cult, dedicated 
to ramen and to the act of creating soup, which seems ridiculous probably to us. But she finds in this little ramen shop and in this little cult, this little way of life, they have a festival and everything else, inspiration and a reason to live. And she offers herself to be the apprentice to this ramen chef. Because what he makes for her is so beautiful. It's art is what he's making in a bowl. And his whole life is literally about being, a, a, being what, like a master ramen chef. To do that, he has to have an apprentice who gets affirmed by this head guy who's essentially a religious figure who blesses the soup that his apprentice makes. And he takes her on as an apprentice. So weird. So to us, but it's a beautiful film, just beautiful. And she, you know, he teaches her and she learns and she starts adding her own flair to her soup. Even though her soup is superior to other soups that get blessed, this religious leader won't bless her soup because she's added stuff that's not supposed to be there. She hasn't perfected the basic thing. She's added to it and so he doesn't bless her soup. And... Um, at the end, him and her and him are talking. She doesn't speak Japanese. She barely speaks Japanese. He barely speaks English. So the whole movie's hilarious as they're trying to communicate. She's, he's trying to teach her how to make soup, and she makes mistakes, and he, like, hits her hand, and he's like, don't do, you know, he's like, it's, it's, it's a comedy. But at the end, they're sitting at this, at, at the ramen shop and everything else, and she go, he, goes, he goes, you just had to have it your way, didn't you? And she goes, I had to do something for myself. And he goes, myself, myself, what is this self that you speak of? And that's a Taoist idea, that this, like, my own way, that, it's on my, that I had to force myself on it. And he says, what is the self that you speak of? That's a Taoist question. And this whole cultural thing, like if you asked people who, are part, who, who respect the ramen cult, take part in the festival, even probably some of the ramen chefs, if they were religious in Japan, are you, do, you, do you have a religion? They'd probably say no. They don't recognize it as religion in the sense that we understand religion. But it functions the same way for them. Because the line between culture, their attitude about life, Religion, philosophy is not like it is here. We make a distinction between religion and philosophy and culture and way of life, and we make those distinctions, but those distinctions don't exist in Japan. So there are, when people try to, try to study, for instance, the relationship between whether religious makes people less violent, for instance, does, 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 religi does religious behavior have any effect on whether a culture is more or less violent? violent, they will include Japan. And people who want to who argue that a highly secular culture is less violent than a highly religious culture will use Japan as an example. They'll say these people don't go, don't go to church every week. Japan is a highly secular culture and has a, you know, vi there's no, it's, it's a peaceful culture. And they'll use that as evidence that you don't have to have religion to have peace. Religious people, religious researchers who want to prove that having a highly religious culture makes people less violent will point to Japan as an example of a highly religious culture being less violent because you can paint J Japanese 
the, you can paint Japan either way. People go to festivals. People engage in behaviors that we would normally call religious, but they don't think in terms of religious and secular. That line is artificial for them. And so when researchers do, you know, use a Japan as an example, they're usually, they don't know what, they're, they're just coloring a situation one way or the other, however they want to. You wa if you watched that movie Ramen Girl, you'd be like, this is a religion. That's what these people are doing. They're doing religion. They're, they're trying to discover the ultimate, you know, truth of the universe. They're doing it in a way that I think is odd, but that's obviously a religion. But the people inside, people who are living that way wouldn't call it that. And it's the same way with Taoism. Taoism's evolving all the time in millions of different ways in the lives of people. Is it the same religion? Is it the same phenomenon that takes place at Taoist temples? Is it the same thing that Lao Tse was talking about? Lao Tse probably would have been freaked out himself that there are Taoist temples. That's far from what he was originally intending. It's evolving all the time. I mean, it's evolving right here because I, as a Westerner who's fascinated by this and somebody who's tried to apply Taoist principles in my own life because there's, I don't see a strong... Um, Unlike other, some religions make you, some religious and philosophies force, force an issue. You cannot, you, you are either going to take a Christian approach to life or a Jewish approach in this situation or a Christian approach or you have to make a choice. I believe that ultimately I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian because I believe Christianity is, um, is um, the best way to reach and contact and have a relationship with God. That's what I believe for myself which I think is a little different than how Mike thinks about a plurality and religion. I don't believe that people who don't think like me are going to hell. I don't believe that people who have a different relationship with God are judged for it. I believe that Christianity is the best way to have a relationship with God. I have to, I have to believe that for myself. That's why I'm a, I'm a minister. It's why I do what I do. But in Taoism, I see a lot of the Taoist philosophy as not for, forcing you to make one decision or another. I don't have to believe, I don't have to deny that ultimate reality acts by emptying itself, and that, that's perfectly in line to me with what I understand with God through, through Christianity, through Jesus Christ. In fact, it's helped enlighten what that means for me. But as a person who's taking that and adapting it to a different situation, as a Christian who adapts Taoist principles to my, to try to adapt Taoist principles to my life, then I, that's, religion is evolving in my own life. And in Taoism, in the case of Taoism, in Christianity's case, that can be a problem. In Taoism's case, that'd be like right in line with everything that Lao Tse was talking about. He, this, that would be exactly the kind of thing he would want to, he would, I think he would want to, would have wanted to see people taking his ideas and interpret, interpreting them in new ways. There's no is the ultimate answer. This is something interesting about Buddhism too, by the way. Buddhism, as you would study it in a university, is very, very different from the way Buddhism is practiced in day-to-day -day life for most Buddhists. I mean, my, my brother-in-law's family is Buddhist, my sister's husband's family is Buddhist, and they pray, they offer sacrifice. Their day-to-day -day religious life looks very different from the way most Westerners think about what Buddhism is. So there's no, there's no central authority, there's no pope, there's no archbishop of Canterbury, there's no structure that tells people what it means to be this. And that the, the ramen cult in, in Japan, or, 
or the cultural fact of the way people treat ramen, which you can interpret it either way, is a perfect example of that. In, in those cases, like in those individual cases, yes, you, have, you might have a cult or a group of people who are influenced by Taoism, and there's somebody who's the head of that institution. Like in Ramen Girl, there's a guy who just goes around, tastes your soup, blesses it, and if it's blessed, boom, they, you know, you're that person. But as a whole movement, Taoism's a very disorganized movement. Which again is in line with lots of things like openness to novelty and change and whatever is going to come next and everything else. The axial line. Seemingly independently, I, I would argue that. We, um, there's been a thought, the person who, co who I, I don't think she, she, um, she coined the phrase axial age, but she popularized it to a writer named Karen Armstrong. Definitely worth reading, especially to understand the axial age. Most historians believe that it is independent, and they think it's because of cultural influences that lead people to urbanization, like people are starting to live in cities more at that time. Um, is probably the best explanation. You have the great empires of history really growing up and organizing society on a larger scale. If um, um, even in, in Greece, which remains city-states, Delian League, different, you have larger organizations of people having to work together. And if you're in Persia, for instance, Persia had the largest empire at the time, and you have this enormous empire, and there's all these different religions coming up with universal principles, at least, that govern people is probably a really good idea, and it didn't just take the emperor to realize that. Other people, that might have been the influence, just people who argue what caused it. Um, there's a guy named Robert Stark, who's a brilliant guy, and he argues that it isn't incidental, that there are connections that are going on, and that the axial age is the result of certain cultural exchanges and ideas. Were, he believes that ideas were moved across. You can't find a lot of evidence for that. He said you wouldn't expect a lot of evidence for that if one merchant's talking to another merchant and people are just having, it's not like necessarily these, these intellectuals were talking to each other, but he believes that the, uh, that the ideas were moving um, in different ways. So he doesn't think it is incidental. It depends, it depends on, um, on the individual religion, and it depends on Taoism. There's parts of Taoism that are actually really concerned with the afterlife. There's parts of um, Zen Buddhism, too, in China, in, in Japan specifically. Um, there's, there's like species of Zen Buddhism that really are concerned with an afterlife, and they have ideas of salvation and stuff like that. For, um, in, so you'll, in Taoism, for instance, you'll get a range. Probably the majority of Taoists, it's about the way you live your life. Um, with the addendum that it's also about living on in your ancestors. It's about people remembering you. It's your memory echoing through history. Um, but there, there are species of Taoism. There are certainly probably individual Taoists, and there's, 
There's minor cults and groups that emphasize an afterlife. There was a there was there's a whole line of Taoism that was really important that was similar to the uh, like alchemy in in Western history. Alchemists were concerned were obsessed with the philosopher's stone, which could turn lead to gold, and also the elixir of life, which could make you immortal. Um, you don't you know this. This was a big thing in the mid, mid in in the medieval times in the Middle Ages. People were there was a quest that people that would have been called scientists at the time were on to find these two things. And there's a species of Taoism that was obsessed with uh, immortality, like, like living forever. And uh, that if you could live your life perfectly in line with the Tao, you would never die. You would stop aging and never die. So it depends on... And, and that's true in Taoism. It's also true in world religions, right? Judaism is never highly emphasized in afterlife. It's never been a big part. It's there, but it's not emphasized. Jews, for the most part, you do good because you love God and you want to live the best life you can here and now. Muslims, the afterlife's a big, big deal. Christians, the afterlife is a big deal. So it depends on the individual religion and what their, um, what their ultimate goals are. I mean, there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of species of, I mean, not species, but I think, I think of all this stuff as e evolution, right? Religions are evolving all the time, so it's not actually a bad, a bad analogy. But there's, there's strains of Buddhism and Hinduism. There's especially certainly individual Buddhists and Hindus who are obsessed with their karma for their next life. They're not, they're not focused on the big philosophical ideas in Hinduism and Buddhism. They're focused on building up karma for what's going to happen next. You have your, you have a, a look on your face, Joe. Yeah, yeah. Yes, right, right. 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 It, it, it's, it's really, uh, I, I agree with you. I would, I would caveat, though, that I think, like, when Jesus talks about finding your life, losing your life to find it, that you sacrifice your, by giving up your need to fulfill your own life project, you find a greater life project in God and your relationship with other people. And certainly for, for um, Judaism, for most of its history, they're thinking in terms of we and community. The idea of a highly atomized self, like, this is me, and this, and what I am is something that's inside here, and this is the locus of my existence, is certainly a Western idea, but I don't think it's particularly a, a, a biblical idea either. I do believe that Christianity and that Jesus believes in a selfhood, and I do believe that um, 
the uh, that um, ha an, a, a individual freedom and individual existence is something that's important to Christ and to Judaism as a whole, especially after the prophets. But it's the idea that you discover who you are as an individual in and through your relationships with other people. And so you find out that the self is more like a... a, a um, I like to say that the self is not a bunch of... We're not marbles bouncing off of each other. That's not what selfhood is for me. We are more like a web. And who I am is a per particular locus on that web. And just like Taoism would suggest, yes, there's a sense in which that doesn't exist, but there's a sense in which it is everything. Like, the intersections are real. I really am a particular... In interaction of a whole bunch of relationships but without those relationships I don't exist those relationships are a big part of who I am and anybody who's lost someone who's really really close to them knows that to lose someone who's really really close to you is losing a part of yourself I mean it's like having your leg cut off or your hand cut off it's about it's losing a part of yourself and you just that's part of the thing about grief right you learn who you are because you learn just how much those relationships are an essential part of who you are so I think that's true, and I think, that you, I think there's, there is a distinction between biblical religion and Eastern religion, but I think the atomized self, when we think of ourselves as marbles bouncing off other marbles, is a Greek idea. I think that comes from Plato and Socrates. I think they're the ones who really, and I think that to the degree that Christianity adopts a highly atomized version of the self, it's really doing Greek philosophy more than it's doing biblical religion. And that's one th another thing I like about like, interpreting the New Testament from kind of a Taoist point of view. Is it, th I would argue that Taoism, in contrast to Buddhism and, and, and Hinduism, which has, a, has a, you know, kind of more, um, I would, um, uh, in Hinduism it's more like being a part of an ocean, right? And in, in Buddhism it's denying that that even exists and whatever it is is, is n unknowable, but I would suggest that Taoism does have a theory of individual selfhood. It, w it doesn't work if it doesn't, because what are you allowing to do its own thing if there's not anything acting? But that Taoism has a more, um, that web-like understanding of selfhood, which I think is in more line with biblical religion. What you say is true. Chinese, Eastern philosophy as a whole is much better at understanding that there is no atomized self. You mean by do you understand what I mean by atomized self? It's this. It's the. Um, it's thinking of yourself as just this one particular person. That this is all. This is who I am, and making decisions from a from this kind of centric point of view. Um, like I said, it's like thinking about one marble bouncing off another. When Jesus says, "You lose your life to find it." He's talking about giving up that kind of in highly individual view of who you are and realizing that you discover who you are in your relationship with other people and re realizing that that's the reality of Christ, that that's the reality of God in through your relationship with other people and with God, that there's no strict line between those relationships and yourself. And that's what Taoism suggests too. There's not like me and then I as an individual relate to other people. There is... Me and who I am is made up of my relationships with other people. That's, that's who I am. Any other questions, comments, thoughts? Okay, well, we're about out of time. Thank you all for coming. I hope I didn't bore you too much.